You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of April, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. Coming up, polls will close shortly in Israel's general election. Can anyone prevent Benjamin Netanyahu from winning a fifth term in office? My guests Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including crucial Brexit talks for the UK government. We're prepared to talk and put forward our views, but talks have to mean a movement, and so far, there's been no change in those red lights. The Labour Party's Jeremy Corbyn is less than impressed with Theresa May's negotiating strategy, but will she have better luck with Europe's top leaders? Plus, we'll ask whether Donald Trump is purging the US Secret Service, and we'll check in with the Monocle team in Milan at the world's largest furniture fair, too. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are veteran BBC radio presenter Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis, deputy head of the U.S. and the Americas program at international affairs think tank Chatham House. Uh, welcome both to the, to the program and back to Midori House. We are going to begin in Israel, where the country's most interesting general election in decades has been taking place today. Israel's right-wing prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is attempting to win a fifth term in office, but is facing a strong challenge from the retired general and centrist Benny Gantz. Uh, Robin, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, this has been a tumultuous campaign for Netanyahu, but he does seem to thrive on on this sometimes and the criticism for a man who's rebuilt his political career in past. Uh, safe to say we probably can't count him out. Certainly can't, can't count him out. I mean, the one thing he is undoubtedly a master at is winning elections. Mm. Uh, he is very good at it. He knows exactly how to energize his base. He knows how to get them out on election day today, which, of course, is absolutely crucial. But you're right. He is facing for the first time in quite a number of years, a credible challenger. Mm. Not from the left, it has to be said, because uh, the Israeli left, is, is, frankly, is a shambles. Mm. But Benny Gantz is a centrist. Uh, he is a former army chief, so he has very good security credentials, which has always been one of uh, Netanyahu's trump cards. However, I think the odds probably are that Netanyahu will be able to form the next government, not necessarily because his own party wins the most seats, but because he will be able to stick together a coalition with other right-wing parties, more right-wing mm. than he is, uh, to form a small majority in the new Knesset. But it's not certain. Um, Jacob, as Robin says there, uh, this could be an issue that, uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, competition on the right. His uh, go-to card has always been that security. I'm, I'm the man to keep Israelis safe. Uh, what do you see uh, helping him out uh, today if he is to win again? Well, I think he has to lean on more than security because, as Robin points out, Benny Gantz has this sort of history as army chief of staff. He was involved in numerous major Israeli military operations over the last 20 years. He really can speak credibly about national security matters. And it has to be said that centrist in the Israeli context is is not necessarily what it means in the British or American context mm. because um, <clears throat> Gantz is own political ads involved things like the number of terrorists he'd killed with a counter rolling upwards and, um, you know, things that, that would put you firmly on the right in uh, American or British politics. But I think there's a sense that, uh, especially with these corruption uh, indictments coming down the line for Netanyahu and mm. some members of his family and close associates, uh, that 
Gantz may have the upper hand in terms of uh, representing a, a, a new approach to government, sort of clean governance. Uh, but whether that's enough obviously remains to be seen. And I completely agree. I mean, he is uh, – Netanyahu is very, very good at mm. building coalitions. He's very good at speaking to his base and, and rallying them and being politically successful. Mm. The other thing that has to be said is that for a lot of Israelis, as important as security is the state of the economy. And the Israeli economy is in pretty good shape and has been in pretty good shape for many years. Now, if you live in a heartland Israel, then, yes, of course, security matters to you, but it's not an everyday issue. You are not thinking morning, noon and night about the threat of a new war. That, for many Israelis, has receded into the background. Economic growth, economic stability and obviously security stability matters. The corruption thing is new for Netanyahu. He hasn't gone into an election before facing the amount of judicial jeopardy that he does now. But the signs from the polls are that at least as far as his base is concerned, not really a great deal. Robin, you've covered five Israeli elections. Yeah. What about what about the American role in this one particularly? Obviously, the U.S. always a huge influence, but in this case, Donald Trump has really emboldened Netanyahu further. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Netanyahu is very fortunate in, in Mr. Trump. Uh, they see the world through the same eyes. They agree about Iran. They agree about Jerusalem being the indivisible capital of Israel. Uh, Donald Trump has recognized Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights. Mm. Uh, Netanyahu has cover from Washington in a, a way that he hasn't done in the past. However, it has to be said that what matters as much to Israel is the U.S. Congress as to who is in the White House, because it's the U.S. Congress that controls how much financial aid Israel gets from the U.S. And uh, the mood in Congress, as I judge it, is not quite as sympathetic to Mr. Netanyahu as it is in the White House. Interesting political time in Washington in, in the stance towards Israel as well, isn't it, Jacob? Yes. And I think... Netanyahu has the upper hand right now because he can point to he can point to a very very tight and close relationship with Donald Trump. He can say that the the U.S. president has delivered for him uh, in a way that no other prime minister. You know, he he got the recognition of the annexation of the Golan Heights. He got the embassy moved. You know, Netanyahu delivers a closer American relationship than any other. Uh, Israeli prime minister in living memory. And that's something that he can really point to. But and, and that may be a key factor in today's election. But if you look beyond that, I mean, I think one of the real dangers of Netanyahu's strategy is that he has, instead of linking Israel with the United States more broadly, he's linked Israel with the Republican Party. And at some day, at some point, soon or far, it may be soon, it may be a little bit less soon, there will be a democratic president of the United mm. States again. And the way that Netanyahu sort of uh, attacked Obama, the way that he engaged in partisan politics at the US level, I think will ultimately be quite damaging to Israeli-American ties. And I think it, this may not be the election, but there will come an election where Likud suffers for having made that bet, that ongoing bet on one side of American politics. What of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's sort of 11th hour move to, to start uh, annexing parts of the West Bank, uh, you know, disregarding four decades of American policy there? Will that harm him in the long run if he becomes prime minister again? I think it'll harm him in the long run because it will increase international condemnation. But I think his his view is get while the getting's good. This is this is as, I mean Netanyahu 
uh, is not a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination. I think he understands at some level that you know he may not have as permissive an environment even in two years' time. Mm. He certainly won't in four or eight years' time. Um, so this is the moment to make big, bold moves, big, aggressive moves that another U.S. administration might be more uh, recalcitrant about or might try to try to restrain him from doing. So while he's got this sort of link, unbreakable link with Trump, you know, strike while the iron's The hot. other thing he's very good at, and he has this in common with Donald Trump, he's very good at saying the things which he knows will excite his base. They don't necessarily lead to action. Um, he knows the, the buzzwords. He knows what to say and when to say it in exactly the same way as Donald Trump does. Um, you know, Netanyahu has been threatening to go to war against Iran for years and years and years. He has not done so. But nevertheless, it's something that he trots out whenever mm. it's useful to him. Uh, let's turn our attention now to Brexit. UK Prime Minister Theresa May must by now be sick uh, to her back teeth of high-profile meetings. She's been frantically conducting Brexit talks with the Labour Party and her own backbenchers in recent, day, in recent days and is now attempting to thrash out a plan with the leaders of France and Germany. But what, if anything, can Mrs May achieve? After all, the UK set to leave the European Union later this week if no further extension can be reached. Uh, Robin, crash out on Friday or another extension? Where are we at? I think it'll be another extension, uh, but nothing is for certain. As we know, predicting anything when the word Brexit is involved is a very dangerous pastime. Mm. Um, it has to be said, you know, as, as, as a Brit, that I find it humiliating to watch a British prime minister literally begging in dis desperation mm. in Brussels, please help us get out of the mess we have fallen into entirely by our own hands. Um, she has no cards left to play. All she can say is, if you force us to crash out on Friday, it's going to be a terrible mess, which is going to damage all of us. It will damage other members of the European Union as well. The signs are that the European Union will grant another extension, hmm. in all probability longer than the one she has asked for, which will spell even more problems for her with her own party here in London. Uh, the mess continues, the agony continues, the humiliation continues. Um, the end is not yet in sight. Mm, yeah, Angela Merkel saying uh, it could be end of 2019 or into 2020, that extension. Uh, I'm curious... I think Macron yeah, has set his yeah. face against going mm. beyond the end of this year. Yeah. I, I saw an Elysee spokesman quoted as saying, next year is too long. Uh, interesting Macron's role uh, in recent days, uh, Jacob. Uh, these are friendly allies usually for uh, Theresa May, but it's been it's been different this week. Well, we can all we can all stay on our friends friends' couches too yeah. long. I think this is a this is a similar situation where you know fundamentally France and Germany and the EU generally are and see themselves as friends of Britain. But this whole set of negotiations has been so enervating and so frustrating and so extended beyond rationality and the the way that Britain has approached it with this sort of unwillingness to uh, take into account the, the way that the EU fundamentally negotiates um, that I think tempers are running quite thin, which of course is, is not the time that you want to be negotiating something with incredibly uh, critical implications for the mid and long-term future of the British economy. So I think in some ways a long extension, if everyone can sort of step down from their, their uh, 
extreme highs of emotion. I think a long extension might give everyone the chance to sort of catch up on sleep and catch their breath <laughs> and maybe approach things a little bit fresher. Uh, Robin, you mentioned uh, before that uh, Theresa May has left begging, but usually when we have these high-profile meetings, a lot would have been done already before the leaders arrive, and I don't think that's the case this time. I don't think it is. I mean, I, I literally do think they're making it up as they go along. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been... Telephone consultations, officials, of course, are in touch before these meetings take place. Certain unofficial understandings will have been reached. But I think there's one other factor which consistently is underestimated by the British side in these negotiations. There are other considerations for other European leaders. There are European Parliament elections coming up next month, which for people like President Macron and Chancellor Merkel are actually very important because if they are seen to be quotes, weak, unquote, in the face of British demands, then they will pay for that at the ballot box in the European elections. What they fear most is a growing support for the uh, extreme nationalists, for the xenophobes, for the anti-EU currents in their own countries. I think particularly for President Macron, this is an issue. We've had the gilets jaunes now for, for several uh, several months. Mm. Um, so these are all considerations as well. I, I saw one article, I think, over the weekend suggesting that uh, he thinks that playing the de Gaulle card might actually be electorally uh, <laughs> uh, positive yeah. for him. You know, de Gaulle famously said non, non, non several times before the UK was even permitted to join the club. So uh, there, there are a lot of things to play for for the other leaders as well. Uh, closer to home, if we just step back a little bit here, Jacob, the opposition has wanted to say in negotiations, uh, red lines have been crossed and criticized. Uh, they've been involved in talks with the government now for days. Has Jeremy Corbyn played a role, uh, a role finally that he, he would, has been wanting to play, perhaps? The problem is trying to pin down what exactly Labour's position <laughs> yeah. on Brexit is because – and you can make a strategic case that – ambiguity. The, the, the Labour Party gained nothing at some point in the negotiation uh, by actually having a sort of formulated solid position on Brexit. I mean, Labour is predominantly but not exclusively Remain voters. And you can make a, a sort of cold-hearted electoral calculation that Corbyn needs to be at least somewhat Brexity in order to have a chance of rebuilding an electoral majority for Labour. Um, I think we're probably past the point where it's useful for Labour to be ambiguous about its Brexit strategy. What they seem to be coalescing around is some kind of customs union. But that, while it goes some way to solving the problem on the Irish border, um, it doesn't solve some of the fundamental issues and it doesn't placate the issues that Mm. the sort of urban – Remaining base that labor also needs in order to be electorally competitive um, would be really would be really interested in freedom of movement. I mean, both sides are saying we'll end freedom of movement. Well, if you are a young professional and you think that it would be great to go and you know vacation easily in Europe or maybe go work in the continent for a few years, you like the idea of having access to twenty seven other countries just by dint of having your passport. Then a labor government saying we'll deliver end of freedom of movement doesn't necessarily inspire you very much. Mm. Uh, Robin, I wanted to just ask you lastly, if you remember uh, any time during your career as a broadcaster where journalists have been pulling out their hair as much or, or using language uh, that seems to be made up every day. Uh, what's the latest one? Flex? flex no, I, I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, I've been a journalist for a very long time and I've seen lots of political crises, but nothing like this, because what makes this unique, among other things, is that both the major parties are split down the middle. Both the major parties, the Conservatives and the Labour Party, have shown themselves to be dysfunctional 
when it comes to dealing with the biggest crisis that this country has faced, probably since the end of the Second World War. There is no good way out of this. Even if we were to wake up tomorrow morning and discover that Mrs May has said, all right, forget it, we revoke our Article 50 letter, we'll stay in the EU, that won't be an end of the crisis Mm. because nearly half the country wants us to leave. Our EU partners are thoroughly fed up with the UK. The crisis continues whichever direction it takes. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis. Coming up, we'll ask whether U.S. President Donald Trump is attempting to purge his country's secret service. Stay tuned. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle. Visit monocle.com. Listen live to our radio station, Monocle 24, or explore more than 5,000 hours of audio. Every minute of every show we've broadcast since we launched. And don't forget that we have over 400 films to watch and share, while magazine subscribers can log in and browse our complete print archive on screen. Our online shop is here too, which you'll find well-stocked with clothing, books, travel accessories, fragrances, homewares, and more. Check into monocle.com every day for fresh news and opinion from our editors and bureau around the globe. Then plan a trip to one of those spots for business or pleasure with our handy city and resort guides. It's all there for you at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? So welcome back. My guests this evening are Jacob Parakilis and Robin Lustig. Gentlemen, we turn our attention now to Washington, where Donald Trump has reportedly fired the director of the U.S. Secret Service. It follows claims in several newspapers that the U.S. president has been attempting to undermine Randolph Ailes over a number of months and often made fun of him in public by calling him Dumbo for his... Uh, apparently big ears. A day after forcing the resignation of Kirsten Nielsen as Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Trump has seemingly accelerated a purge of the nation's immigration and security leadership. Jacob, uh, let's get right into this. Is this a sign Trump is planning uh, an assault on immigration policy by clearing house? It seems to be. I mean, the, the Secret Service is an odd one because the Secret Service, while it falls administratively under the Department of Homeland Security, has nothing to do with immigration policy. Mm. It is uh, predicated on protecting the life of the president and a few other key officials and engaging in anti-money laundering activities. That is the the remit of the Secret Service. And until the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, it was under the Department of the Treasury. So the there's still not a lot of clarity on why the director of the Secret Service has been fired. There was some uh, press release within the Secret Service that indicated that his departure had been planned, but that seemed kind of, uh, it was a little bit slapdash. So um, there's some linkage possibly to the fact that a Chinese national was arrested at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's private club, where he spends much of his time um, with a USB key containing, um, let's call it suspicious malware, uh, which the Secret Service uh barely intercepted. Um, And the the ongoing clashes between Trump and the Secret Service over access to the president's inner circle wall at Mm. Mar-a-Lago. Separately and simultaneously, there seems to be an effort possibly slash probably orchestrated by the president's extremely hardline xenophobic advisor, Stephen Miller, uh, to get rid of Kristen Nielsen, who's seen as sort of a (laughs) a bushy, a light Republican, uh, Mm. someone who's not willing to go along with the extent of Trump's demands to close the border and deny asylum seekers. Uh, Nielsen, it has to be said, went along with family separation. She went along with some of the harshest and most inhumane aspects Mm. of this administration's border policy. So calling her soft and squishy, I think basically just means that she wasn't willing to 
hold the law in as complete contempt as Stephen Miller and Trump wanted her to. Mm. Robin, do you agree with that? Is this a yeah, I, I yeah. think that, that last point that Jacob makes is, is absolutely key. I, what I find most disturbing about the, this, this purge, if that's what it is, uh, are the suggestions in, in the American media that what these uh, fired officials did wrong in Trump's eyes was refuse to break the law. And uh, I find this rather worrying that uh, the U.S. president should be firing officials because they seek to uphold U.S. law. Now, it has to be said this is all based on media conjecture, on supposition, on leaks and so on. However, there is reason to believe that Mr. Trump still has not come to terms with the idea that even though he is president of the United States, he can't do whatever he wants. Mm. And if he says to an official, stop asylum seekers coming in, we're full they might turn around and say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, the law does not permit us to do that. We are signatories to an international treaty under which we have certain obligations to people who come to our border claiming asylum. Now, Mr. Trump, it would seem in in this field, as well as in many others, just doesn't hold the law in very high regard. Mm. If he says do it, he expects people to do it. And never mind what the law says. If he's now firing people because they refuse refuse to do that, that is really quite seriously Mm. worrying. Uh, Jacob, has Trump failed in his own goals of getting tough on immigration? Is this what this is? Uh, I think it depends a lot on what you mean by getting tough. Mm. I mean, he certainly, he has stepped up and, and in context, it has to be said, aggressive enforcement was stepped up massively under Barack Obama. Um, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the enforcement arm of the, the sort of domestic enforcement arm of American immigration policy deported more people under Barack Obama than under any previous American president. Um, and so, but that was part of a, a strategy where Obama said, right, we'll get tough on it, on illegal immigration and also try to protect, you know, dreamers, people who came in as children. We'll, we'll, we'll try to have a sort of sensible immigration reform with the placation to the hardliners that there'll be this tough enforcement. And that was more of a failure because he never managed to get comprehensive. He managed to get some temporary sort of executive protections for people, but he didn't actually manage to pass any legislation loosening or uh, reforming American immigration restrictions. Trump has definitely gotten tough. There have been a lot of horror stories about ICE agents deporting people from hospitals, from churches, deporting people who turn up to collect their children. Of course, family separation, taking children as young as a few months away from their parents and putting them in overcrowded, under-provisioned centers, which some of them have died. I mean, you really can't exaggerate how horrible this has been. Mm. But on its own merits, it's been a failure because the number of immigrants turning up at the American border has actually increased. So if the point is to deter people from coming, which apparently, according to Trump's own words, it is, uh, then it's been a failure. But I'm not sure that's the point. I Mm. think the point is to be cruel. And also one has to bear in mind, I mean, we all will remember those pre-election rallies and those chants, build the wall. Um, first of all, he hasn't managed to build the wall because Congress won't let him, won't give him the money. Secondly, as Jacob says, the number of people crossing the border has actually increased. Now, it, it's not difficult to imagine the rage that that must engender in, in, in the presidential mind. He is being shown by the numbers to have failed on his signature policy. He hasn't built the wall. He hasn't stopped migrants crossing the border. 
He is determined to do something, to do anything to get that across. He's going to face re-election in two years' time. He needs to be able to show he succeeded, and he hasn't. And it's also, just on the political point, it's also really important to note that it wasn't a winning issue for him. He went around, he sent the army to the border, he went around yelling about immigrants coming over the border to kill you, and what happened? The Democrats took 40 seats in the House, took back control of the Speaker's gavel. It's not in the way that he frames it, a winning political issue. But I'm not sure that there's a recognition there that it's... I mean, I think he thinks, this worked for me last time, it will work for me next time. In his time. own mind, it's all he's got. I mean, it's his, his trump card to use a bad <laughs> pun. But... <laughs> and what of playing to his base, Jacob? How is that working out now, uh, especially on immigration? So the the sort of incredibly tired trope is that Trump's base will never desert him. Um, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I think that I mean there is a there is an element of Trump's base which, for which being incredibly hardline and sort of uh, dogmatic on immigration and not letting asylum seekers in and treating people who are fleeing terrible violence as some kind of alien threat to the country uh, is the point. But I think those people are going to vote for Trump anyways. They can't vote for him more than once. Those people are going to crawl over broken glass to, to vote for him. And they're not a huge portion of the country. Immigration as a general concept has been increasing in popularity in the US for the last few years. So it's it's not only counterintuitive, it's counterstrategic for him. I mean, I, I understand that there's not much room for him to go, go up, so he needs to keep the excitement of his base high in order to have any hope at all of a sort of path for re-election. But it just seems deeply, deeply counterproductive beyond the moral and legal questions. Something we'll surely be picking up in future here on Monocle 24. Gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there for now because uh, finally on today's program, we're going to cross live to Milan where Monocle 24's executive producer Tom Edwards is standing by. He's been soaking up the sunshine at this year's Salone de Mobile. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. Uh, can you set the scene for us there now? Absolutely, uh, Daniel. The sun is kind of settled in the sky, but it's been a beautiful day. Um, I have been working quite hard, though, just to be clear. Uh, and another man who's joined me here at our little setup at El Prefugio Trento Uno in Tortona in uh, Milano is Nolan Giles, Monocle's design editor, who's been hard at work today. He assures me he's not had any frosty ones yet. Uh, Nolan, you've been at the fair. Um, day one, I guess, really for you there. Um, tell, us, uh, tell us what you've been seeing. Who have you been talking to? I've had a big day at the Fiera, Tom. So essentially, Salerno del Mobile kicks off properly today, and uh, all of the furniture brands from around the world have all gathered in one gigantic trade fair hall. And I wandered around and uh, saw the new designs, and now I'm uh, looking forward to that frosty one. <laughs> yeah, hard-earned indeed. Um, we've been having a lot of fun here, and actually lots of friends, old and new, have stopped by our Monocle uh, setup where we're talking now. We've had uh, friends like Christoph Armand and Julius Wiedemann just stop by to, to share a few perspectives on, on their experience here. But tell us, what, what's been the kind of key narrative, I guess, from the people that you've been chatting with already just today at the fair? Because, I mean, you say trade fair, it doesn't really get to the, what this does to the city. Half a million people more the population's boosted mm. by. Mm. It kind of transcends that. Um, mm. What's got people excited? Are they talking about digital technologies? Are they talking about... Uh, design for better living. Any any kind of key narratives? What struck you already? Yeah, I think it's interesting at the trade fair, Tom. Um, if you look at the amount that brands are investing in outdoor furniture, maybe that has a little bit to do with global warming. It also has to do with the fact that people, designers, we're thinking more about the outdoor space as an area of 
not just you know an escape from the indoors and it's an area for living i mean we're, we're sitting out here in the tortona it's only april i mean we could be out here all night we're both wearing you know linen shirts linen jackets the weather's fine um yeah so there's there's just kind of this desire i think among interior designers and architects to be thinking about the outdoor space they want workplaces to be more comfortable we're very lucky at midori house that we have you know an incredible balcony space where we can sit out but i think that's becoming more commonplace in offices mm -hmm. and lots of design companies are catering to this so for example carl hansen and son who essentially are specialists in uh danish furniture from the mid-century uh, and also you know more modern more modern takes on that style they're thinking about the outdoors and then you know more contemporary brands like Catal from Spain are really upping their game and pushing out much further than Spain as a market of outdoor furniture you know the UK Germany uh, all around Europe Asia you know they're becoming spaces for this for this type of furniture and I wonder as you wander around and I'm sure there are so many brands who are intrigued by this what in your head triggers this feeling like this is a good monocle tale is it about you know old standards that we often talk about on this program and others about uh, craft about doing things properly mm. um, devising things that are built to endure whether mm. that's the style that endures the design that endures or their mm. functionality and um, mm. what are some of the kind of you know, I guess sort of monocle hallmarks the key things that you look for that make you feel this is a product that maybe our readers our listeners should hear about mm. I think at the end of the day it's actually kind of a simplicity in an idea behind a design there's so much that you see that is you know lots of bells and whistles but when you actually see something uh, in situ that's kind of just thoughtfully done it solves a problem it looks beautiful in your house and it doesn't add anything else you know that's all you need I think we, we see that today so that for example uh, a Spanish lighting company called Marset have done a beautiful lamp which is essentially a bedside lamp and you pop you pop your hand on the lamp and you can just move it and it will kind of dim it in like a very beautiful way and you know it's, it serves a purpose it looks good and you know it doesn't doesn't have anything extra on top uh, you're saying thoughtful, problem-solving, looks beautiful. At that very moment, Monocle's editor, Andrew Clark, wandered by, a man who embodies, <laughs> embodies those very traits. Um, just really quickly, Nolan, what, what are you most excited about for the, the rest of the week? Um, presumably you've got lots of exciting appointments happening. Is part of it, though, just wandering around the streets and enjoying that serendipity that you never know who you're going to bump into around the next corner? Yeah, literally. I mean, I was a little bit late for tonight's event due to the fact that I was <laughs> bumping into so many people on the street. You know, there's designers at every every bend. You know, it's just a, a very inspiring place and situation to be in. Uh, well, you're going to be hearing much more, uh, Daniel, and all our listeners around the world on this programme and on our show, The Briefing. Uh, 1300 here in uh, Milano at noon in London, of course, over the coming days. So, uh, Daniel, make sure you keep your appointment to keep up to date with all the goings-on here at Salone in the days ahead. Thank you very much to Tom and Nolan there. Uh, Monocle 24 executive producer Tom Edwards and Monocle design editor Nolan Giles. Enjoying the evening at Salone del Mobile. Lovely atmosphere there in the background. That does bring us to the end of today's program. Uh, thanks to my guests Robin Lustig and Jacob Parakilis here in London and of course to Tom and Nolan there joining us from Milan. As Tom mentioned, we're broadcasting live all week from Salone. If you are heading to Milan, do go out and say hello to the Monocle team. Today's Midori House, produced by Reese James, researched by Teresa Marvulli, and our studio manager, Christy Evans. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 in London time, 1900 in Milan. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>